This past Tuesday, as uh, Sham and I were getting ready to board our plane to come back here after our vacation, I had the privilege of being selected for my first ever full body scan. <laughs> it is making headlines all over the news south of the border here. And there are radio talk show hosts that are pontificating about um, what an invasion this is on privacy and speculating on what can and cannot be seen on these screens and what might be done with these photos. It just gave Sham and me lots of room for laughter every morning as we sat at our breakfast table reading these articles. But seriously though, seriously, 9-11 did change everything. It took something that was basically stable... Flying was a no-brainer, by and large. And has plunged us into a time of uncertainty. And in nine years, nothing has changed. Things keep getting more and more uncertain as those that want to do something come up with new ways and we have new methods uh, to somehow counter that. Always a few steps too late, you know. But nonetheless, it's there. And there are no shortage of pundits and interpreters who want to tell us what our times are going to look like and how we should live and what we should do and so on and so forth. And none of them are really helpful because nobody knows. I want to take you this morning to another date. Not September 11, 2010, but August 24th, the year 410 AD. Does anybody know why August 24th, 410 AD was important? I didn't, so don't feel too bad. It was the year Rome was sacked by the gods. And the last time Rome had been conquered was almost 800 years before that. St. Jerome, who is best known for the translation of the Bible into Latin, said this, The city which has conquered the whole world was itself conquered. And when, when that kind of power that had been in place for 800 years collapses, that introduces a whole new time of uncertainty. Now I have no idea whether there were the equivalents of our political pundits around in those days. But God had a brilliant interpreter named Augustine. And as he used his massive intellect and his great heart for God and his knowledge of the word of God to try and interpret Rome's collapse, he came up with an 800 page book called The City of God. He ranged all the way back to the first book of the Bible in Genesis chapter 4, when Cain, after the murder of his brother, was sentenced to be a fugitive, he built a city. God built a garden, but Cain built a city in an act of defiance. And Augustine traces how throughout the scripture, the city of man was being built in defiance of God. He pointed out that the city was a massive social construct, often beautiful and even heroic, rendering plausible life without God at the center. But he also traced throughout the scriptures another city, this time the city that God was building, called the city of God. And when history reaches its end, here's a sample uh, verses from Revelation 21 that talk about this city. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. 
by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it so the end of history is not a return to the garden but god actually takes the city which is a symbol of human defiance and makes heaven out of it and it is this brilliant interpretation of history as the building of the city of god in the midst of the city of man that once again produces tension in us <laughs> which of course has been the subject of isaiah 24 to 27 we've taken two cracks at it already let me just kind of quickly review what we learned so far the first kind of tension comes from looking at the world that is in a mess zimbabwe being a little microcosm of that mess and if people take the world seriously but not god they use to take one of two options either despair but because most people don't have the courage to live in total despair they choose the path of diversion eat drink and be merry for tomorrow we drive die the other side which is also easy which sadly many christians take is to not take the world seriously take god seriously and that's a very privatized form of christianity that's also eat drink and merry but tomorrow we die and go to heaven and we are all okay tension comes when we have to take the world seriously and god seriously and we learned that that involves amongst other things to realize that what has plunged the world into this kind of misery is human sin collectively and therefore we learned that to take both seriously is a signal for us to hate our sin to understand sin in all its depth uh, that's the last time Sean shared the beginning of his journey with us to strive and live holy lives by growing in grace and then to sing in anticipation of the universal song when we you know when we sing songs like we did today the earth is filled with your glory we might look at it and say but that isn't true right now god that's okay sometimes it is good to sing songs of what is going to be as if they are right now because that's the way in which the future breaks in upon the present and we get a little bit of a taste of what we are destined for and so that's how we lived in that tension then the second uh, walk through 24 to 27 we focused on five brilliant images that isaiah portrays three of them are very positive images there's this image of a banquet for the nations when the shroud of death has been removed from the nations and the nations of the world are gathered in this beautiful lavish feast where god himself is the presider over it we saw another image of leviathan the the, the sea monster symbolizing satan ultimately and finally destroyed and defeated and we saw this picture of israel pruned by god bearing fruit among the nations this was balanced by two very dark pictures on the other side one was the pride of the nations symbolized by moab swimming in the muck swimming being the quintessential expression of the go it alone policy so a banquet for the nations and the pride of the nations pulling in opposite direction and the other dark picture was the failure of god's people to bear fruit symbolized by a pregnant woman about to deliver and giving birth to a puff of air and nothing else this was the second tension and i suggested to you although we didn't elaborate it because i wanted you to focus on the images for a while i suggested to you that some one set of verses in the middle of isaiah 26 gives us some some clues as to how we need to live for him uh, steadfast mind walking in his ways waiting for him longing for his glory humility and confidence and i encourage you to just kind of take the study guide Uh, either by yourself or in your small groups and probe a little bit as to what these things might mean if you did do that you are so much better equipped to listen to what i have to say today because we're going to unpack that central section but we're going to do it we're going to recast this tension 
in the context of the city of God and the city of man because you will find that Isaiah 24 to 27 speaks about that and I'm sure that uh, that formed a huge part of Augustine's fuel for his book. First of all, two cities are described in these chapters. One verse from each of these chapters 24 to 27 on the city. The wasted city is broken down, every house is shut up so that none can enter. Chapter 25, verse 2. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be built. Chapter 26. For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, cast to the dust. And then chapter 27, verse 10. For the fortified city is solitary, a habitation deserted and forsaken like the wilderness. One verse from each of the chapters talking about the city of man and its destiny. The interesting use of the word wasted goes all the way back to the second verse in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1 you might recall it says God after he made the heavens and the earth. It says the earth was formless or shapeless. It's exactly the same word wasted. God's verdict on the city of man which is a social contract designed to make plausible life without God at the center he said, for all of its impressiveness, its magnificent buildings, its great parks, its, its theater, its culture, and all of that places, he said, that's not shapeful at all. It's actually a shapeless waste. And that's where it's headed one day. In the midst of this, there's the city of God. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwark. If the characteristic of the city of man is to make plausible life without God at the center. The characteristic of the city of God is God is at the center. One is a wasted city and the other is a strong city. So he sets up that contrast between the city of man and the city of God. And because of these two destinies, or two different destinies, you see them characterized by two different songs. The songs and the music of a nation are extremely important. I think I forget who it was who said... I don't care who writes the laws, let me write the songs of a nation. You know. The songs are symbolic. <laughs> and there are two kinds of songs. Chapter 24, verses 7 to 9. The wine mourns, the wine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled. The noise of the jubilant has ceased. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine without singing. This is the song of the city of man where it is primarily fueled by the loss of inhibition that is produced by alcohol. It is a desensitized, undiscerning mind that then bursts out into song. In contrast is the song of the city of God. They lift up their voices, they sing for joy. Over the majesty of the Lord they shout from the west. From the ends of the earth we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. In the city of God, they don't need anything to lower their inhibitions because the subject of the song is the majesty of God and every one of their faculties is at its highest at that point. Two cities, one without God, headed for destruction, one with God as the center, a strong and a lofty city. Two songs, one fueled by the inhibition, that loss of inhibition that comes from alcohol, the other with all of our senses active fully, fueled by the majesty of God. But then he gets to the citizens. Two cities, two songs, he talks about two citizens. First of all, citizens of the city of man are described in chapter 26 in these words. Though grace is shown to the wicked, they do not learn righteousness. Even in a land of uprightness, they go on doing evil and regard not the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, your hand is lifted high, but they do not see it. There are three ways of God 
in the midst of the city of man that is described here. First of all, he shows grace. Secondly, he produces a land of uprightness. And thirdly, his hand is lifted up, which is, which is symbolic of God acting, either for good or for bad, but to attract attention. These are the three ways where God, who is building the city of God in the midst of the city of man, through his people, is still calling out to citizens of the city of man. He shows grace, he gives them a model of what uprightness looks like, and he acts in ways that are unmistakable. How do they respond? How do the people of the city of man respond? This is the characteristic. Because remember, it is a plausible social construct to make plausible life without God at the center. Though grace is shown to the wicked, they do not learn. It is an uncomprehending mind. There are so many ways in which natural man receives grace, but he doesn't understand. Rain, air, health, food, relationships, love meaningful work, intelligence. These are all marks of the grace of God, but they do not recognize where it's coming from. An uncomprehending mind in response to grace. In a land of uprightness, they choose to do evil. They are are not without witness. The citizens of the city of man do have models of righteousness around them. They see the self-evident testimony of what wisdom looks like in wholeness in life and relationships. But their response to it is to continue to do evil. That's the perversity of the will. And thirdly, they regard not the majesty of God. Even though God has demonstrated the reality of His presence, both in deeds of good and judgment that cannot be explained otherwise, they cannot see. And that is spiritual blindness. Three ways of God in the midst of the city of man, three classic responses. An uncomprehending mind in response to grace, a perverse will in response to a witness of righteousness, and spiritual blindness in the face of God's unmistakable activity. And with that, the stage is set for what he really wants to talk about, what I want to talk about, and that is the citizens of the city of God. That's you and me. What are we like? He just continues with a few verses before that. First of all, Isaiah 26 verse 3. You keep in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. It's an interesting Hebrew word for mind. I was quite surprised when I saw it. The, the primary translation of the word translated to mind here is pot. You know? Not, don't normally com- compare your mind with a pot. <laughs> but as I began thinking about it, I thought, what he, this is what he's saying here. Uh, it's something created. Pots in those days, well, earthenware pots. Potters shaped them. <laughs> It's interesting that the Hebrew word that is used for mind here is something that is capable of being shaped. And the idea behind here is that this mind is shaped by being stayed on you. It becomes a God-shaped mind. It is a mind that chooses to deliberately focus on who God is. And as that happens, the mind begins to take a certain shape. And a mind that is shaped by God cannot but grow in trust. And a consequence of that trust is peace. It's emphatic in the original. It says you keep in perfect peace. It's actually you will keep in peace, peace. Shalom, shalom. And, and, and in the Hebrew, peace is not primarily an absence of conflict. Natalie's testimony showed us that. It actually is much better captured by the word integrity or wholeness. It is the kind of freedom from tension that comes when everything is connected properly to everything else. 
So that in an outside world of tension, you are still free from tension on the inside. So this is the first characteristics of citizens of the city of God. They recognize that because they live in the visible city of man, they need to make a deliberate focus on who God is. And Isaiah, of course, itself is a perfect example. He introduces us to the Holy One of Israel. It's a beautiful example in scripture that gives us some practical insight. Abraham particularly, but also the patriarchs. In Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about this. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. And earlier on this text said Abraham was looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. Look at those three verbs, seeking, thinking, desiring. There's a very important sequence in there. What we think about, we start desiring. What we desire, we start seeking. Thinking, seeking, desire. Thinking, desiring, seeking is something we do all the time. Uh, just short, a couple of days before we were to leave back one morning as we were having breakfast, we re- had a wonderful privilege, of course, during vacations to read newspapers every day, which I never get time to. And on this morning, Sham picked out all the um, flyers advertising this, that, and the other. She said, just throw them away. She said, because when I look at them, I want to buy something. That's uh, looking, desiring, seeking. I just wish she'd done it on the first day of our holiday. <laughs> Seriously, though, seriously, you know, it's just, you get the point, right? <laughs> the city of man is a visible city. And we are relentlessly hammered by the messages of the city of man. Through its music, through its television, through the radio, through the people, through these people, the citizens of the city of man who are characterized by an uncompromising mind, spiritual blindness, and perversity of will. But here, listen, all of it sounds attractive. That's the point. The city of man is a social contrast that makes plausible and attractive life without God. Therefore, citizens of the city of God need to make a deliberate focus on what they are going to choose to think about. And the primary task is a mind that is God-shaped. That's the issue. That's the message. That's the first characteristic. And by the way, when we do that, we get peace. That's the sequence. We focus, choose to focus on God. Our mind takes a God-shaped focus. Our trust increases. And the result of that trust is peace that He works in our lives. There is no other way to get peace. Because as we know from Isaiah, if we will not stand firm in faith, not stand firm at all. Alright, the second characteristics of the citizens of the city of Mazda, verses 7 to 8. The path of the righteous is level or upright one. You make the way of the righteous smooth. Yes, Lord, walking in the way of your laws, we wait for you. Now, both in prophetic literature and in wisdom literature, walking in the way is obedience to the laws of God. Now, while it applies to all of God's laws, specifically in the context of these chapters, with its brilliant images of the nations eventually gathering around this magnificent dining table and this feast, Israel bearing fruit among the nations. This is specifically talking about the kinds of obedience. The way of walking before the citizens of the city of man 
that makes the city of God attractive. It's the kind of obedience that Natalie and her family did for It's the kind of obedience that's not primarily what happens on Sunday morning. It's what happens from Monday to Friday when you are living in the midst of the city of men. It's not just the private holiness, the freedom from gluttony that is crucial and important. But it is the way in which we live in the midst of the city of man that makes people with an uncomprehending mind and a perverse will and spiritual blindness and give them a hope of seeing and desiring and coming. It involves all of the things we do to make that end of the nations worshipping God real. All of our activities on behalf of the nations, whether next door or across the world. Whether we send people, whether we pray for them, whether we write letters of encouragement, whether we show hospitality to people when they are home. All of those things. It's all part of walking in the ways of our God. The other interesting thing I found about this is the declaration. The path of the righteous is level, O upright one. You make the way of the righteous smooth. Now if you're honest, you've got to look at it and say, that's not life. <laughs> Natalie's description doesn't show it was a very smooth time all the way, you know. Not literally true on the roads and not spiritually true. So what does this mean? The path of the righteous is level, O upright one. You make the way of the righteous smooth. This is not so much a testimony of actual experience as much as the perspective of faith on all of life. Remember one of the images was God pruning Israel for fruitfulness. So when the road is bumpy, people of faith, people of the citizens of the city of God, look at that bump and say, it's still part of God's ways making life smooth. It's pruning for the purpose of fruitfulness. That's an assertion of faith. And so when walking in the ways of God takes us to a bumpy road, This is how the perspective of faith is. That bump is a pruning shear in God's hand to continue to make us fruitful so that that wonderful, glorious end of the nations worshipping God is being furthered by our activity. Now the third thing it says here is, Yes, Lord, walking in the ways of your laws, we wait for you. (laughs) Waiting is the third dimension of life as citizens of the city of God. Now, why is that? These amazing promises contained in these magnificent images were written 2,800 years ago. The description of the city of God in Revelation 21 was written 2,000 years ago. So we've been waiting 2,000 years for the fulfillment of these promises. We might have to wait, not you and I, but God's people may have to wait another 2,000. I don't know how long it's going to be. You know, God doesn't seem to be in a hurry when it comes to fulfilling His promises. The promises are clear and unmistakable. He just doesn't seem to be in a hurry. Therefore, guess what? (laughs) While we are shaping our minds by a deliberate focus on God, while we are walking in the ways of God, while we are receiving the bumps in the road as a pruning shear in the hands of God to increase our fruitfulness, we also wait. (laughs) The single best book I've ever read on the subject of waiting is written by a man named Ben Patterson, and the book is called Waiting, so you won't forget the title. It's a one-word title. Waiting. There are two insights in that book that I've carried with me from the time I first read the book. 
Now think of words well. The first one is simply this. He says, second only to suffering, nothing builds character like waiting. Second only to suffering, nothing builds character like waiting. Uh, and you know, in a way it's important because not all of us seem to be called to suffer, but everybody is called to wait for some time or another. So that's the first thing that I learned. The second thing that was really precious, worth the price of the whole book, was this, he said, waiting is not something you do until whatever you're waiting for happens. He said, waiting is the means by which you get what you're waiting for. Because of what is happening to you while you wait. And the best way I can illustrate that is, let's imagine somebody who would love to get married and is waiting to get married but isn't happening. The former kind of waiting would say, well, I just have got to wait until she shows up or he shows up. No, no, Patterson says no. He said, if you wait properly, then because of what is happening in your life and God is building character, you're going to end up being a different kind of person, so you'll have a different kind of marriage. So you will get what you really want by the way in which you wait. That's what he's talking about. Waiting is not what you do until you get what you're waiting for. Waiting is the means by which you get what you're waiting for. Two precious insights from that book. And so, citizens of the kingdom of God have a mind that is shaped by a focus on God. They walk in the ways of God, but especially the kind of public witness, the kind of life they live, the kind of words they speak, that makes the citizens of the city of man be attracted to God. And thirdly, people who wait for God and wait in such a way that waiting itself becomes a part of getting what they're waiting for. And then fourthly, this is probably the key And that's why it is repeated three times. Your name and renown are the desire of our hearts. My soul yearns for you in the night. And the morning my spirit longs for you. Desire, yearning, longing. These are all words of of a deep appetite that is felt. And what is the appetite for? Your name, which is the character of God. And your renown, that you may be known for who you really are. That's what they are desiring and longing for. All these other things that citizens of the city of God do. Shaping their mind, walking in his ways, receiving pruning discipline, waiting. What motivates them, what drives them, they have got a taste of who God is and a desire that more people would come to know him. And perhaps the most concrete expression of this desire is prayer. Because, and why do I say that? Because when the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray, what did he say? Our Father, Word in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's what it is. It's an expression of the desire that God's name would be recognized as holy all over the world. And his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's not prayer in general. It is prayer that is specifically related to this issue of God's name being known and recognized among the nations. So it is prayer for all dimensions of the task of evangelism and missions. But more than that, because it is all driven by an appetite for glory. I think it is, there is something even more foundational there. You know what that is? It is prayer for the kind of encounter with God's glory that will create an appetite for more. You see, it is a birthing of new tastes. It's a birthing of desires that didn't even exist. For the first 20 years in my life, I was a vegetarian. Then one day, one of my friends persuaded me to taste tandoori chicken. And another one persuaded me to have bacon and eggs. Whole new appetites were born that day. (laughs) Well, I had to then spend another 10 years breaking that appetite for bacon, right? (laughs) But seriously, that's what is at stake here. In other words, it's a prayer for revival. 
Because it is when, when the near presence of God is felt as it is in revival time, whole new waves of missions of ministry and mercy are released. Both compassion ministries next door and across the world in Zimbabwe, as well as evangelism, historically have been released through times of revival. So that's the foundational prayer. Oh Lord, your name and renown are the desires of our heart. We long for you, we desire for you to show up. That's why Jesus taught us to pray. Let your, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's the fourth characteristic. The fifth characteristic of the... Oh, by the way, Augustine put it so beautifully in this context. Two cities, two glories. Two cities have been formed by two loves. The earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God. The heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former, in a word, glorifies in itself, glories in itself, the latter in the Lord. For the one seeks glory from men, but the greater glory of the other is God. The one lifts up its head in its own glory. That's uh, Moab swimming again. And the other says to God, you are my glory and the lifter of my head. The fifth characteristics of the citizens of the city of God is found in these verses. O Lord, you establish peace for us. All that we have accomplished, you have done for us. This is humility. As we seek to shape our minds by a focus on who God is. As we walk in his ways... Hopefully in a way that we can be salt and light to the citizens of the city of man around us. As we learn to receive discipline, the bumps in the road as the pruning shears. As we wait. As we pray for a near encounter with the glory of God. Any success that we have, we very quickly say, God, it isn't me, it's you. Whatever successes we have along the way. We are quick to acknowledge that it is He who has done it in us. See, those who have a passion for His glory are quick to give Him the glory for whatever happens in their own lives too. That's humility. And Patterson in his book talks about the importance of humility as it relates to waiting. He says this, Humility and hope are the essentials of waiting. But it is humility that makes hope possible. Until you are clear that it is God, not you, who is the master, and you, not God, who are the servant, you will feel your rights are being violated whenever you are forced to wait. You will resent your waitings and find every rationalization to take matters into your own hands. In other words, you cannot hope in God until you have ceased to hope in yourself. All that we have accomplished, O God, you have done for us. Now, paradoxically, it is those who are humble that are supremely confident. Back up here. Verses 13 to 15. O Lord our God, other lords beside you have rolled over us, but your name alone do we honor. They are now dead, they live no more. You wiped out all memory of them. You have enlarged the nation, O Lord. You have enlarged the nation. You have gained glory for yourself. This confidence is birthed in a history of God's working for them. Isaiah's mind goes all the way back to Egypt when Pharaoh ruled over Israel for 400 years and they were under severe bondage. Then he remembers the 480 years of the time of the judges when the Philistines and the Midianites and all the various people kept ruling over the people of God. And in more recent times, Assyria. And then of course when the people will read it in captivity, Babylon. And then eventually Persia when they will read Isaiah when they come back to the land. Other lords beside you have ruled over us. (laughs) But they're all dead. Their names are gone and forgotten, God. But you're still living. And your name we still honor. 
In spite of every attempt to destroy your people God, you destroyed them and you're still enlarging your nation. That was the basis of their confidence. And then it's also captured in perhaps chapter 25 in a beautiful verse. And with that we'll end. Uh, For in perfect faithfulness you have done marvelous things. Things planned long ago. There are many marvelous things that human beings do that were not planned. Uh, Those of you who know something about uh, North American football know what a Hail Mary pass is, right? Uh, last week, uh, in one of the games, uh, Jacksonville Jaguars were playing some team, I forget what, and they were about one touchdown behind. And it was the last play of the game, and the quarterback from about 60 yards behind just launched this pass into the end zone. Because everybody in the defense knew that what was going to happen. And so the defenders were all swarming around this one guy. But he somehow managed to jump up and catch the ball. They call that pass a Hail Mary pass, you know. The obvious connotations, are, in other words, it has to be a miracle. And then, of course, the, the announcers break into a superlatives, you know, amazing, wonderful, awesome, never happened before. Did you see that? Wow, look, at, you know, the, the superlatives all flow. None, that wasn't planned. Pure luck. Hail Marys are always pure luck. You know what chapter 25 verse 1 says? For in perfect faithfulness you have done marvelous things, things planned long ago. When God wins in the last three seconds, he didn't get lucky. When God wins in the last three seconds, it's no Hail Mary. It was planned long, long ago. That's why the people of God can be confident. That's why we can say, every prayer prayed for a missionary or evangelistic or mission of mercy endeavor. Every trip taken like Zimbabwe. Every letter of encouragement written to a missionary, every um, home used in a ministry of hospitality, every dollar given, every act of service, nothing is in vain. They are all contributing to the things that God has promised long, long ago. So there we have it, a description of the citizens of the city of God. A God-shaped mind, obedience walking in His laws, Patiently waiting for him, desiring his glory, uh, humility, and confidence. I want to close with this one observation. Though I don't know any Hebrew and Greek grammar, but the scholars do, and they tell me that the tenses here are not indicatives, are indicatives, not imperatives. And if you don't remember your grammar, you know what the difference between the two is? An imperative is a command, an indicative is a description of what is. These six characteristics, they're not primarily commands of what we should do. They are descriptions of what we are like. And so really, what we have before us in this section, in this contrast between the city of man and the city of God, are a description of two kinds of people. One kind of people, an uncomprehending mind, a perverse will, and spiritual blindness. Another kind of people, a God-shaped mind, obedience, patience, glory, Humility, confidence. So the real question only remains is, whose citizens are you? That's what I want you to think about. As the worship team comes back and leads us back to the focus where it really belongs. On God and His glory. Reflect on what you heard this morning. Ed, while I was on vacation, was called Crazy Love, Overwhelmed by a Relentless God. And near the end of that book, he talks about how we live our days is how we will end up living our life. And he said, here's a simple question for you to ask yourself as you live your days. He said, stop 
and ask yourself what is the most loving thing to do at this time <laughs> on five occasions in the last five days that that one simple question has immediately clarified me what i needed to do at that moment and to actually enjoy doing it as well and i just want to bless you with that kind of love and a desire to act in love wherever you are so that those citizens of the city of man that are around you may not think any more that life without god is plausible and may begin to desire a different kind of life go in jesus name